Well, good morning. If you will open your Bibles to Romans this morning, we're going to be there in Romans 4, and we're picking up where we left off in verse 9. And um, I'm going to anticipate that I will not finish the chapter. So even though the bulletin might say to the 25th verse, I'm starting to get closer and closer to Lloyd-Jones' ideal of preaching through Romans, and that is to narrow down to the point when we're preaching one word out of a text. It might happen, don't know, but it's getting shorter for me. Um, But just anticipating... Uh, what I can cover uh, adequately. We're going to read uh, there from verse 9 and close out there at verse uh, 17. And so I'll be reading uh, there from God's holy word. The word of God says, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after but before he was circumcised, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, and not only to the adherents, the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, he, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Amen. Amen. So as we look at this text, I uh, have several titles in mind, but the think most agreeable title would be Abraham the Christian. Uh, if you remember in times past, I spoke about um, Paul the real Jew, because he argued that true Judaism was fulfilled in Christianity. And here, uh, taking an Old Testament example, we're seeing uh, Abraham uh, is a true Christian. I, um, I want to say, um, not just a Christian, uh, but a post-millennial Christian. And the reason I say that is the sense in which the final aspect of the text speaks is that we have a clear promise that Christians will be heirs of the world in Jesus Christ based on Abraham's promise. Uh, In other words, that history here is outlined for us in the promise of God to the father of the faith, guaranteeing that God's people will be given the world. Satan often wants to take uh, his people, took Christ up there and offer him the world as if he owns it. But this is our Father's world. Satan is not our Father because we believe in Jesus Christ. God owns all things. He is the one who is the possessor of all peoples and all nations and all that is in this world. He made this world. He's the creator of this world. And it belongs to Him. And because it belongs to Him, He alone can give the world to His people on the last day. And so I mentioned the terms Christian, which was controversial in the early church. Uh, It was really a derogatory term spoken of those who were followers of the way. Today, often the term postmillennialism is a derogatory term that is used today uh, for those who actually believe the promises of God. And I'll explain 
that by the end, a little more clear, I hope, from the text, but merely the word post means after the millennium, and the, the, the millennium means Christ's reign. And Reformed Christians all consent to believing that Christ rose from the grave, ascended to the Father at the right hand, and is reigning. And that the reign of the thousand years is not a literal thousand-year reign, but that it is a figurative one depicting to us that Christ will reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, and he will return. Some have a more pessimistic view of what will happen between that time and some a more optimistic view. So we're not dealing with that here. That can be dealt with in other texts. But the base level is that the history of the world has been outlined for us by God, that Christ has risen, Christ has ascended, Christ has taken the throne. He will reign with all authority in heaven and on earth until he comes again. And between that time... He must fulfill all the promises that we read in the prophets, in the law, and in all the New Testament. I think that is as simple as we could put what postmillennial worldview is, and it is that which is truly Christian. And if it's not Christian, it ought not be believed. And the reality is that we've been plenty of controversies throughout our day. Many people use the term Calvinist as a derogatory term. And the word Calvinist simply means the view that people are totally depraved and that salvation is by grace through faith alone, that we would not turn to God without the spirit of God irresistibly calling us to himself and laying his claim on us. And we certainly couldn't keep our salvation if it wasn't for the persevering power of the Holy Spirit. But in Calvinism, as it's been derogatorily called, We're simply talking about God saves sinners. I think it was J.I. Packer who simply said, you want to know what it means to be a Calvinist, and it means to believe that God saves sinners. It's really Christian orthodoxy. The book that helped me most in that was The Doctrines of Grace by James McGovery Boyce, his deathbed book. So I pay attention to great saints of old who have preached in the pulpits of America And it made a difference for the authority of the Word of God because all the subjects I'm opening with today really have to do with who you believe is in charge of this world. Who's in authority and who has the final word? And we proclaim clearly the Word of God is the final word. The authority of Scripture. It's infallible. It cannot lead us astray. It's inerrant. It has no errors. It is the authority of Scripture that causes us to lay ourselves bare before God and say we believe all that it, that it says. And therefore, uh, that settles it. It's not because we believe it that it settles it. It's because God said it, it settles it. And we are His followers through Jesus Christ, and therefore we follow His holy word in the 66 books of the Bible. So, a little explanation there as to where I'm going. But I want to look at this whole idea first of circumcision. Uh, Not a particularly high topic that we would pick out, but the idea was the circumcised were those who represented the Jews. Um, That is, the Jewish nation, ethnically, uh, were considered the circumcision. And the uncircumcision were considered the Gentiles. They were considered the uncircumcision. Now, the, the Gentiles could be converted to Judaism and go through certain ritual to do so, And they um, would, uh, of course, be demanded to be circumcised and such things. But when Christianity has been unveiled at this point, uh, what we see is Paul is explaining now the purpose of circumcision, the purpose of the division between Jew and Gentile um, in the very beginning of history. If you notice, when you read Genesis, you need to first get the first 11 chapters right. Uh, You need to have the solid belief that God created everything in six literal days out of nothing, ex nihilo, which is the theological term, out of nothing, he created. And that he didn't create this in long ages, but he created this in literal days, the beginning of time, because he's God. 
And really, um, you know, I became a Christian there. I became a believer there uh, personally. Not everybody becomes a Christian by reading Genesis 1-1, but that's how I became a believer. So I began to read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The irresistible power of the Spirit made me believe. I can explain it no other way other than I began to read the Bible at night and I began to pray, uh, pray about frivolous things, pray about the needs of my life that God cares about. And I began uh, just to believe. And I didn't understand all about what it meant. And I didn't understand how it all related to things. But I knew I, knew I believed. Uh, there, there was just a time and a moment where I, I was changed. And I was on the trajectory of like Pilgrim's Progress depicts. This, I was on my way to the celestial city uh, at that point. The burden wasn't off my back yet. But I believed, and I was every bit a believer the moment I believed. And the amazing thing is, is I study the Scriptures um, for over 20 years now. It's still an absolute discovery every single week, every day. Uh, it, it's just such a journey. And I'm so grateful to have the Word of God. It's what buttresses our lives and, and strengthens us and and grows us. If, if Christianity was just about getting in the door of salvation, uh, it, it wouldn't really be that wonderful, happy of a thing. It's, it's that just like this book is written for the purpose, it was to strengthen existing believers and prepare them to be able to receive the proclamation of the gospel in person. And, uh, and so Scripture here, especially in Romans, is for that purpose. This idea of circumcision um, has been used to argue for um, the sprinkling of babies in regards to them being part of the covenant. Uh, and it, just off the bat, there's nothing in the text that talks about baptism. And there's nothing that would indicate that we're supposed to apply membership to those who don't believe before they believe. But I will explain how they get there with that. The text, though, tells us what is this blessing if it's not for Jew and Gentile? He's saying that the blessing that has been read uh, from the psalm there by David, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. In other words, that blessing of being accepted by God, forgiven by God, is for the whole world. The world was defined at the time as Jew and Gentile. So it encompasses the entire humanity, the, the uncircumcised and the circumcised. And he asks, is this blessing for just one? And it says, because we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness he goes on another question how then was it counted to him was it before or after he had been circumcised and here's where he's getting to the point he received the sign of circumcision as a seal notice of the righteousness that he had already he had it before he was circumcised he had it before that ritual and before that aspect of uh, bearing the sign of the old covenant, he had it as what? A seal, meaning a confirmation. That's what the word seal would largely mean in the context. It would be a, a confirmation here, a, a authentication of the righteousness that he had by faith. Notice, by faith, while he was still uncircumcised. So it was faith alone that brought the blessing of the righteousness of God to the account of Abraham. Later we read it, it says that he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's the idea. The word uh, counted is an accounting term. It means that it was placed in his account all the righteousness of Christ and all the sin we see that it was taken out of our, out of our account, out of Abraham's account, and it was put on Christ. That's why Christ died for our sins. 
And so um, we read later that it's the circumcision of Christ is the bloody death where He was cut off. He was cut off for us. Right? So circumcision doesn't have that significance anymore because it's fulfilled in a bloody death of one who was cut off on the cross for us. And this blessing now comes to everyone who believes. It's not universalism, meaning that everyone will be saved because Jesus died. It means everyone who believes God, everyone who is a believer, who by faith trusts and believes and rests upon Christ alone for righteousness, they all will be saved. And B.B. Warfield called it eschatological universalism, meaning that God will save the whole world, Jew and Gentile, all the people that believe. So we don't believe that everyone will be saved. We believe that all who trust in Christ will be, but we know that there will be the world saved because God said He would save the world. How He saves the world is He saves those in whom He sent His Son to die for. And so we see, uh, by the end, we see all Jews, all Gentiles that trust in Jesus will be saved. He, he received this sign as a seal, confirmation. And He says the purpose was to make them the Father of all who believe without being circumcised. So the reason why the order of events happened in Abraham's life, and think about this, Genesis 12 all the way to the end is about the generations out of Abraham. So it's, it's a big deal. It's a big deal to the Jews. Abraham, they would say, is their father. Jesus comes and says, your father is in Abraham. Your father is the devil. He was always so seeker-sensitive, wasn't he, uh, to encourage those who were basically crooks and thieves and liars. Um, thanks be to God, we have a shepherd who would do that and who defends the flock of God, so that the people of God can be cared for and loved and cherished and carried all the way home. And, and God is faithful. He takes us all the way home. There's not a, a promise in all the Word that will not come to pass in blessing His people. And even we see this. Abraham has died not seeing, not seeing the fulfillment of the promise. So he died and is alive, though, with Christ. Because he's not the God of the dead, but the living. And therefore, Abraham sees all the more clearly the fulfillment. And Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and was glad. And the gospel was preached to Abraham, right? We see in Galatians. And we see that Abraham... Though he didn't get to see the promise in his lifetime, he will see the promise. Well, this, this sets the trajectory of how you view life. Because all of God's promises will be fulfilled to His people. Nothing you do is in vain. The, the, your marriages, your families, your work your church attendance, your involvement in the community, every sphere of life where God reigns and He reigns over all of it is something in which is never in vain. It is part of the cumulative work of the Lord to bring the nations to Himself. And you may not see the fruit or fulfillment of all that. I believe you'll see some of it. God is so kind to show us glimmers. He showed Abraham glimmers of it. But the fullness of it will be in the final. The consummation and the final return of Jesus Christ, all will be accomplished. He's not going to leave us somewhere on the journey. He's going to take us all the way home and He's not going to fail to fulfill His promises to the generations of God's people. And He's not going to discount the work of our hands that we've prayed that He would bless in this life but it's going to matter for generations. It's going to matter for the spiritual efforts we do in the church. It's going to matter for the generations that we seek to bless in our homes. It's going to matter in the work that we do in community. Whatever that is done for the sake of Christ will last. 
And as Christians, we, we believe those things. As those who, who believe He reigns right now and He's coming after this reign, we believe those things. Because He's orchestrating all the events of history to a final point of victory. One of my favorite songs when I became a Christian was Victory in Jesus. And um, I know some of you also share that as, uh, you know, I never sang at all. Uh, some people wish I didn't, but I never sang at all. But I started going to church and hearing God's family sing. And it made me want to sing. And then finally getting the courage to do so, uh, began to participate. And it really is. The, the, the practice of worship, the practice of singing, uh, puts a death nail in the devil's efforts to destroy the joy of his people. We can sing at all times, but especially we sing when we think of what Christ has done. We look at the issue here as faith. Faith is what receives the righteousness of God. And this is the theme from the very beginning of the book. That the righteousness of God is that which Luther said had to be received from heaven, had to be received from God. It is the power of the gospel. In it, the righteousness of God uh, is manifested from faith, for faith. We're strengthened by it. There's no other way you're going to grow in the Christian life than by receiving the means of grace and the proclamation of this gospel in the uh, communion with the church and with prayer. Those are the, anybody that tells you you're going to grow as a Christian by other means is a liar. You, you can't grow but by the means God ordained. And they are those three main means. The Word of God, prayer, and the genuine fellowship with the body of Christ. That's how you grow. And it's like taking someone and just throwing them onto the concrete out of a, like a plant, out of a, a planter, out of a flower bed, just throwing them onto a place and letting it bake in the sun to not have them planted in the church of God. It was David's cry that I would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That it would just be increasingly that I'm, I'm planted in God's house. He's going to take me all the way home and I'll really know what it is to be. In God's house. He said He prepares in His Father's house many rooms. And that He clearly is telling the truth about it. He told us that and that it would be a joy to our hearts and lives. He says that all of this is to show it is not those who are merely circumcised that are uh, God's people, but it is those who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And don't miss it. He's saying it was first to make those who aren't circumcised to be uh, in the faith. And second, it was to make those who are to be in the faith. Only those of either side, if you want to put it that way, who believe are truly children of God. That's, that's what is being taught by circumcision. Circumcision here um, followed the belief of Abraham for the purpose that he would be the father to both circumcised and uncircumcised, making it very clear so as that the only way to be saved and receive the righteousness of God for any human being throughout all of time would be by faith alone. He's arguing for the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now, our Roman Catholic friends want to argue that you start with faith alone, but then you must maintain it on your own. And it requires, obviously, a lot of penance, a lot of confession, a lot of whatever they tell you to do. You know, I was listening to something this week, uh, the idea of freedom. When someone tells you that freedom is basically doing everything I tell you. Well, that's not freedom, is it? No. Freedom might be um, 
you guys following God and everything He tells you because He shows you true freedom. But freedom is not a, a tyranny. You're set free by the Gospel to now gladly follow the Lord. You're not being forced to follow the Lord, but from the heart you have been changed. Your will has been set free to now want the things of God, to love the things of God and the people of God. The change has taken place. You may not understand all of the theological categories, but you know one thing. You know something's happened. You now love God. You now love the people of God. I remember those first moments of just going to church and be like, you know, I, I, I love God now. I love the people of God. I love being among the people of God. That was not ordinary. That was extraordinary. Now, for a little while, I didn't have as much assurance because there was a lot that was coupled with it, like food. I was fed to Jesus. My, my in-laws, I always tell you, uh, from the very moment, we would go to church and then we would go eat afterwards. And so I had to really, the Lord had to take me through tests and trials and difficulties to really help me in my assurance because there were so many blessings, so many natural blessings. And I don't think that's a bad thing because you see, God doesn't just make us on one side this spiritual being. He has made us holy, a, a full being made of body, soul, and all. And God cares about all of those things and He ministers to all those things in His kindness and in His love and in His mercy. And therefore, the moment came to where you begin to think, and realize that all that you have, all that you are, and all that you ever will be is because of Him. And um, that's not natural. That's supernatural for a person to come to belief in God that way. Well, it should be clear, and, and, and perhaps I've not done the best job at uh, making it clear, but I want to make another effort before we go to the next text, uh, is... That salvation is by faith alone, and therefore um, you, you don't have anything else to make you more of a Christian from the first day till the final day of your life or the coming of our Lord. Um, you're no more Christian at your highest point of growth than at your lowest point because salvation, righteousness, you can't get any more righteous than Christ. And the moment you believe, the moment Abraham, let's, it's really about Abraham here, Abraham believed he was fully justified and would not be unjustified. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And so Abraham is made righteous by faith alone. And then you say, well, why circumcision? Circumcision was there, um, as it shows here, after the timing of it so as to make sure that he would be the father of both. Um, nothing is said about baptism, but here's why people of our, our Reformed brothers, whom we believe are entirely in the family, and we welcome them, um, that some will apply the covenant sign of the New Testament, get, assuming correspondence here, and it's a big assumption, uh, of baptism, replacing circumcision, as they would put it, to their children. And the reason they do that, um, the reason they would apply that is because they'll say that Abraham, um, again, it was a seal to his faith, and therefore it's a seal to our faith. And he, he believed before, but Isaac didn't. Isaac had the sign put on him of circumcision, and then he believed. So they say, because of the continuity, which I hold to a continuity here of the covenant, you should follow Abraham by doing the same. But the text doesn't say that. The text says, follow him before he was circumcised by his faith. It says nothing of doing this. So I can follow the logic. I get the logic. Um, but the problem is, it doesn't say that. The other problem is, 
is that the authority of Scripture binds us. And there is no command or example anywhere in 66 books of Scripture to tell us to do this, which if it was something so important that we should apply it to infants, and and again, saying infant baptism is just for the sake of what others call it. It's infant sprinkling. Um, There's so much wrong with just the act itself because never are we called to sprinkle. That was a figurative matter that was spoken of in the prophets, uh, especially in Ezekiel, that sprinkled the hearts and consciences at the altar figuratively so that they would have the assurance and strengthen their faith. It had nothing to do with the beginning of faith. And then secondarily, nowhere in Scripture are we commanded to apply to unbelievers, those who have yet professed faith and repentance to God, to apply that to them who have not yet done so. Everywhere in Scripture, in every example, the clarity of Scripture is that we apply the baptism of of water, that they are buried with Christ in the water and raised to walk in His life. We do that for all who profess faith and repentance to God only in in this uh, command or commission. It is that you make disciples. And so the only ones we are authorized to baptize our believers. And I share, that's, that's the conviction arising out of the text, as simple as I could put it is, I don't have the authority to put an unbeliever in the water, someone at least that doesn't profess faith and repentance in Christ. We know that we will baptize people that turn away and fall away and aren't true, but the church doesn't have any authority to apply the name of God to those who don't yet profess belief in God. And the moment you do so, it's not about baptism and it's not about circumcision. It's about that you're going to have to change the governmental structure of the church to maintain it. And we ought to learn from historical example that the moment you do that, you run into all kinds of church problems. There is no way to then govern the church congregationally. You will have to set up um, an equivalent of a popish group in order to make sure the children who have been baptized into the church who have not professed Christ will act like Christians. It doesn't work. It hasn't worked. It has caused problems in the church abroad. And it really sets up the church for a tyrannical way of leadership and government. So when people say, what does it mean to be a Baptist? It's not even about baptism. It's about the fact of a church governance that actually believes that the Holy Spirit directs and guides the church under Christ and the authority is the Word of God with Christ our head. It's about how we view Scripture. And that we say Scripture gives us the only authority to bind or loose the conscience. So... The application applies to everything. During periods of time, people may come and say, well, you need, to, you need to tell people to do this. Well, the question is, does the Scripture tell people to do this? During the 2020 period, people were pushing for people to mandate masks and to mandate certain things in the church. My response to them is, I have no authority to tell anybody to do such things because the Scripture doesn't give me that authority. The Scripture gives me the authority to say the things we say from the pulpit and to bind the consciences of the people on the basis of the Word of God alone. We do not have the authority to do whatever we want to do. We must do what God says we are to do. And that's what we proclaim from the pulpit. And to go beyond that as an individual believer and to begin seeking for teachers to be raised up to apply to your children, something in which Scripture doesn't authorize is not pleasing to God. Though we are absolutely understanding, we are friendly, and we welcome those who share the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. We call them brothers. I understand absolutely how they get there. I share with them the continuity of the covenant. I believe this covenant of grace runs from beginning to end. I believe we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And I believe... That's the belief of the church as a whole because it's so clear in Scripture. 
but we differ in an area of those things like baptism and church governance. And we, res- we should be able to respect that of them, and they should be able to respect that of us in our tradition. Uh, because at the heart, what we really care about is does this person trust in Christ alone for salvation? So you say, Pastor, what would you do if a Presbyterian comes and they want to be part of the church? And uh, I said this to our men yesterday. Well, um, here's how I would handle it. I would handle it in the sense as I would say, you need to be baptized. Because our church governance requires that you follow what the Word of God says in becoming uh, a member of the church. You must be baptized into the church. So you need to be baptized. Um, say, well, I can't do that. I, I, don't, I don't believe in that. We're like, we don't believe in baptism? I say, of course not. Pastor, I believe in baptism. I just believe that I were already baptized as, as a child. I, I want my children to be baptized in the church. So I can't do that because I, I believe that would be a sin for me to go against my conscience. But if you want to become a member of the church, you're going to have to be baptized. Uh, not sprinkled as a child before you believe, but following the Lord in baptism. They say, well, I love the church. I want to follow the Lord. I want to be a part of the church. I believe what you're preaching. I'm nourished. I'm helped. I'm strengthened. Well, if you believe that, if you believe that, then you know that that it's good for you to be here and you should submit to the authority that God's put here. And you should submit to the the convictions of this body. Um, You you should come realizing that you may be wrong on what you're, you're committing yourself to. And I would plead with them and I would encourage them. And so they say, you know, I... I'm willing to submit to that. I'm willing to become a member in that. And I'm going to follow that. Welcome. We welcome you. Um, But they say there's one problem. I want my children now to be baptized. I want my children to become, uh, to to receive what I received in it. And I'll be like, you know, get you a bowl at home. And and, uh, uh, it can be a pretty one. It can look like the, the fount of all blessing. And you go baptize your kids. I mean, you got. I will give you uh, whatever authority I have to say. You know, if it's such an important thing to you that you've got to clear your conscience on the matter that you need to do that. But for them to become a member of this church, they're going to have to be actually baptized, because that is what this church believes. That's the way we govern the church because we believe the word of God has the final word. And there's no clarity on the matter. When we get to heaven, we'll be glad to be wrong if we're wrong, but we don't think we will be. We believe R.C. Sproul right now is at least at the point of laughing and rejoicing that he was wrong about baptism. (laughs) But if R.C. Sproul was alive and walked in the door, I'd welcome him as a brother. I'd actually esteem him as a father. But we disagree on that. It's okay. It's okay. But I'd, I'd worship in a Presbyterian church that believes the Word of God any day than to worship in a church that though they have all their, their things right on uh, everything that's external, um, I'd worship in a church that had the main things right. And I, I pray that we're a church that's charitable and that we seek to understand. And if we're wrong on it, Convince us otherwise. We'll be glad to investigate it and work through the scriptures and endeavor as a church to really seek to be right on it. Because at the end of the day, we want to please God. And I think that's a charitable way of communicating to you um, the way we should be communicating to other Christians that share our faith. We love them. We welcome them. Uh, But we have to walk together in agreement. Now, as you go to the for the promise of Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the inheritance of the law who are to be heirs. Faith is null uh, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, where does this come from? This is where the postmillennial thought really comes to pass is he's promised to be an heir of the world. Where does that come from? Well, it didn't come from the original promise as explicitly because it says he would inherit the land. 
And that land was specifically located in a specific part of the world in the Middle Eastern area. And that land they still fight over today. And that, that is what was promised explicitly in the Pentateuch to Abraham. By the time you get to the prophets, you do see hints of an expansion of this. But where it came from was the interpretation of the Jews of those promises. And it says explicitly in those extra biblical writings of the Jewish tradition that Abraham would be an heir of the entire earth, the entire world. So it's significant that here again we see Paul, we've seen this before, he's taking that which was traditionally taught by the Jews where it was correct, and he has, it has been inscripturated here because the Holy Spirit is, has uh, ultimately authored this. And he's saying that this was about Abraham being an heir, not merely of the land in Israel, but of the whole world and every nation. Uh, so we base, we base the fact that the focus is not on the Middle East. The world is focused there. Even people that aren't Christians think there's this superstitious belief that, hey, we need to go in and bless the Jews because if we bless the Jews, God will bless us. The only way you're blessed, the Scripture says, is by faith in Christ alone. Get that. You betray your belief by the way you speak and your attention you give to what's going on in the Middle East because you're not giving attention to what's going on in Scripture. Scripture says the way people are blessed is not by blessing Jew or Gentile, but by turning to God through Jesus Christ in faith alone. If anything the world should be concerned about, it would be how they view Scriptures in the church. Because God's people are made up of Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean the Jew loses his identity or the Gentile loses his identity. It means that each of these people groups representing the whole ethnos, the nations, are all in Christ's blessing by the same means. Faith in Christ. And there's no refuge in the law. The law is a poor refuge. The law will always condemn you. You'll, you'll go to the law. The law will say to do one thing and, and you'll find you're promising to do something and before you know it, you failed. You may want to do all these things. You may want to have everything just perfect and right and tidy, but it will drive you mad and it will, it will condemn you. You see, the law doesn't save. And he's saying that for the law brings wrath. The wrath of God. And there's law everywhere. The law has been revealed in heaven. The wrath of God is revealed against all godliness and righteousness of men. The law has been revealed in the Scriptures as it tells us that those who, who sin will die. In both places, the book of creation and the book of Scripture, we find that the law is no safe refuge. The law was never meant to be a refuge. The law was meant to be a tutor to lead us to Christ. And the law takes on different aspects as we become Christians. The law never goes away. But the law is not the place we run to. We don't get up and say, I'm going to run to the law so I can feel good about myself. You run to the law if you want to, you know, I know you're having a proud day. You're like, man, I need some humility. Go to the law. It'll take care of that. And it will show you that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely only by His grace. So he says, don't go there. In fact, I, I recalled in Galatians 5 where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And that's telling me that in, in the New Covenant, those who are members of the New Covenant, which included Abraham, those who are members under grace, by faith in Christ alone, there is no wrath. Think about that. There's no wrath. There's no condemning law over you in that way. You, you fulfill the law by walking with Jesus, but you're not, you're not under the law in that way. You're not under sin. You're not under condemnation, but you're under Christ who fulfills the law. So how do you stand most with the law? You stand most with Jesus. How do you stand uncondemned and, and without guilt and without shame and be able to uh, think clearly about the things that matter in life and, and have the comfort all the way home. You stand with Jesus Christ. 
And we need men and women to start standing with Christ. You're going to be known for something. Be known for standing with Christ. When the things get most difficult and most stressful and most, most painful in life, stand with Christ. On your worst days, make it your aim to, to stop standing with anything else, good, good or bad could it be, but stand with Jesus Christ on the matter because there's only peace and safety and refuge when you're standing with Him. It says it depends on faith in order the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all. This text can kind of confuse. Some people think, well, it says here it's to the adherents of the law. That means and to those who walk in the footsteps of faith as if um, he's saying that the Jews are okay on their own terms and the Gentiles have to be okay on faith but you're missing the context. The context has already said that both aren't okay without faith. He's just simply using the terms. Those who are the Jews, adherents of the law, those are the Gentiles. And so either way, he's saying the whole compass of it is faith alone. None are justified without faith. So there's no, there's no, there's no other way but Christ for Jew or Gentile. As it is written, and here it comes back to the authority. Where's the authority? Again and again, Paul's coming back. As it is written, your practice must be authorized by the Word of God individually, corporately, in the world. We, we are nowhere saying in the terms of, of seeing the world come to Christ, which we believe God will do according to His promise and His way and His time. We're not saying... That the church needs to go and rule the, rule, take the place of the state. We're not even saying that the church needs to be one with the state. The problem isn't even about the state not wanting the church in it. The problem is the state doesn't want God in it. The real issue is that God reigns over the church and God reigns over the state and God reigns over the family, and God reigns over the individual, and God reigns over the business, and God reigns over the hobbies, and God reigns over the arts and entertainment. God rules all. That's the view that Scripture propounds. There is no place on planet earth where He does not reign. All authority has been given to Him in both places. He rules. And therefore, the kingdom, yes, is most experienced in the church as we gather on this earth, because we are gathered as believers that have been submitted to Christ. But every area on this world ought to be submitted to Christ. It's not about bringing our authority over top of those areas. It's about pointing people to have God over those areas. And the best way we do that is start with ourselves, start with our families, start with our businesses, start with our hobbies and the things we do. And display that as a light to the world. As it is written means we go by the authority of Scripture. I've made you the father of many nations. And in the, in the presence of God. And it literally says whom he believed. The word in is, is not in the original. It is the God whom he believed. Who gives life to the dead. And calls into existence the things that don't exist. And let me close with this. He calls... Things not being literally as being. Where's the power? Where do you get the power to believe like Abraham believed that made him a Christian? That made him have a view that he will keep his promises to the end? You get that by believing God the way he believed. And, and where's the power for him to believe God? God in His attributes is foremost a God who gives life to the dead. We see that He believed this when He offered up His son Isaac later, right? He believed that. That was a, a later occurrence authenticating what He believed already. Why could, why could He live that way? Why could He demonstrate His faith that way? It's because He had faith that God raises the dead. 
That's what he believed about God. The second thing is he believed that God calls into being, calls things not being literally into being. And so the only way you can go from being totally depraved without hope in the world and being nothing to being something is for there to be God who does that. Nowhere is his faith in religion. Nowhere is his faith in a church. Nowhere is his faith in a person. Nowhere is his faith in a ritual. His faith is in the doctrine of the triune God of the universe. It's what empowers him. This God made everything out of nothing. This God raises the dead. And that's the power of his life. That's where his strength is found. You know, as much as we want to strengthen each other, as much as Paul wanted to strengthen the church, he knew he could only strengthen it by preaching the gospel, which is really the declaration of what God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit alone can and will do. Do you believe God's promises? Then you're Christian. And at least in some sense, you have to believe He reigns. And in the final end, when He comes, He's not coming back in order to give us a preview of a kingdom. He's coming back to consummate it all. And He won't fail any promise that He's made. So may you be encouraged that Abraham, the Christian, gives us the example of how you and me and any of our children to come will be Christian. Let us stand. Father, I thank You to be able to set forth the truths that are clearly made in this text to Your people. I pray You would take that which may not be as clear by my voice and make it clearer. And those things that have been made known clearly would be treasures for your people and encouragements and blessings that they would rest in you today. They would find Christ better than anything life can give or take. They would be able to rejoice that they're part of the family of God, that they've heard the word of God, and that they know you, God, who calls things not being to being and who has authority over death, the keys of it in your son's hands. We thank you for the hope of the gospel. And we pray you prepare us to study the rest of it the following week. And we pray now as we go to the table to demonstrate our continuance in this faith and to receive the benefits of the gospel applied to us spiritually by our communing together today. That you would cause your church this day to rejoice in your steadfast love and be glad. To be overwhelmed with the beauty of the presence of the Lord. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. May you come.